The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From string theory to the Big Bang, black holes to dark matter, our big scientific theories are increasingly conveyed through metaphor. Yet from Newton to the latest theories, science is also largely founded on mathematics. So should we see scientific metaphors as real descriptions of an underlying universe, or are they instead just marketing vehicles for sets of mathematical equations? Joining us to debate reality, fantasy, and metaphor are research fellow at the Francis Creek Institute, Ginesh Taylor, scientist and author, Rupert Sheldrake, chemist and writer of popular works of science, Peter Atkins, and post-postmodern philosopher, Hilary Lawson. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Joanna Cavena. From string theory to the Big Bang, black holes to dark matter, our big scientific theories are largely conveyed through metaphor. Yet from Newton to the latest theories, science is largely founded on mathematics. Should we see scientific metaphors as real descriptions of an underlying universe, or are they instead marketing vehicles for sets of mathematical equations? Could Newton have chosen to call forces spirits and Einstein have called fields matrices? Would our understanding of reality have been profoundly different? Should we see all scientific concepts as a metaphorical fantasy or are they true descriptions of an underlying reality? And here to discuss this, we have a very brilliant panel. Ganesh Taylor, who is a genetic researcher and science communicator currently working at the Francis Crick Institute. We have Rupert Sheldrake, who is a biologist and author best known for his theory of morphic resonance. And Rupert's 2012 book, The Science Delusion, Questions Scientific Materialism. We have Peter Atkins, who's a chemist and author of physical chemistry, as well as best-selling science books, including Galileo's Finger and Molecules. And we have Hilary Lawson, who is a post-postmodern philosopher and leading critic of philosophical realism, best known for his theory of closure. So in a moment, I'll give our discussants each two minutes to answer a question that I'll set to each of them in turn, and then we'll have a debate 
among the panel. First to Ganesh Taylor, are scientific metaphors real descriptions of an underlying universe? Thanks, Joanna. I mean, uh, what a question to ask a biologist, I'd say. Um, but my take on this is um, as, as a developmental biologist, but also as somebody who um, spends a lot of time trying to talk about the science and the scientific findings within my community with um, people outside of it. Um, and so my understanding of the question, are scientific metaphors real descriptions of an underlying universe, is as much as we are able to understand the universe, metaphors uh, are a perfectly valid vehicle of explaining it to each other. So um, metaphors were a big part of my education, at least when I was um, attending university. Metaphors are often used by lecturers to sort of try and get across uh, concepts um, in biology. And um, they have a, a very particularly uh, sort of useful element, namely that is that metaphors are sort of easily accessible, I would say, intrinsically, and therefore also to some extent memorable which presumably is why it's used when uh, trying to get students to sort of retain information in their brains. Um, and having trained as a, as a biologist, I myself use a lot of metaphors, at least when I'm talking to non-scientists about the ins and outs of, of my kind of work. And whilst obviously metaphors are limited, as is our understanding of the of reality, whatever that might be, um, I think that they are very useful. I find that they are very good for having a conversation with somebody and at least getting across the sort of broad strokes, the sort of top tier understanding and scientific concepts at least sufficiently to be able to engage with someone on the matter. Are scientific metaphors real descriptions of an underlying universe? I mean, I'm seeing you guys through a screen, which is actually not really what I see. It is a reconstruction that uh, a few kilos worth of neurons in my cranium is sort of reconstituting and telling me, well, you know, there's four people here who, with whom you are going to be having a conversation. And is that real? I mean, not really, but yes, equally, about as real as it can be for an organism like myself, I'd say. Thank you very much, Ganesh. And now I'll turn to Rupert Sheldrake with the same question. Rupert, are scientific metaphors real descriptions of an underlying universe? Well, we have to think in metaphors, and science is absolutely full of them. Um, my own view is that science uh, is based on a series of models of reality, and sometimes we change our models to a better one. But metaphors underlie the whole thing. And if you take at random uh, a scientific textbook, and I took at random Peter Atkins' Physical Chemistry, um, one finds that it contains metaphors throughout the laws of thermodynamics. The idea of law is a metaphor based on human political systems. It's not even all humans have laws. Tribes have customs. Um, then we have charged molecules and ions. And charge, again, is a word uh, that's used at the same root as carriage and car and so on. Uh, it means loaded. And you know, somebody's charged with an offence in a court of law, and then the prisoner is discharged if they're found not guilty. All this association, all the, you charge a gun, you know, cannon with gunpowder, and you discharge, it goes bang. Um, all these associations sort of hover around these metaphors, which look like normal scientific language. Then there are chemical bonds, and again, that's a kind of metaphor. Uh, in biology, a lot of people think in terms of genetic programs. Um, 
you know, the genes are often described as a genetic program. That's a metaphor based on an intelligently designed software for computers. I think a very inappropriate metaphor for the way organisms work, but nevertheless, it shaped a great deal of biological research for decades. And I think even mathematical models are metaphors. Uh, mathematical models are models. Um, and they model reality sometimes better than others. Newton's model uh, of the universe was considered the perfect model, indeed the truth, until Einstein's relativity theory came along, and then we got another model. It's another metaphor. So I think what we can do is choose between models. Uh, some metaphors are more suitable than others. I mean, the idea that nature is a machine has dominated science in the 17th century. Uh, a better metaphor might be an organism. I mean, animals and plants are actually organisms, so it's better to think of them as organisms than machines. Um, and so I think we can choose among metaphors. Uh, I think that the so-called laws of nature might be better thought of as habits. That's part of my morphic resonance idea. Um, that would be a shift of metaphor. So I think all of these are ways of looking at reality. We see it through the lens of our minds. We can't do otherwise. And, but we can choose among metaphors. They don't tell us the absolute truth, though. Thanks very much, Rupert. And I'll turn to Peter, who may also want to respond to um, the, the remarks specifically about his work as well. Um, Peter, are scientific metaphors real descriptions of an underlying universe? Thank you, Peter. We have to distinguish between two types of scientific explanation. One type doesn't involve mathematics intrinsically. Um, and a prime example of that is the theory of evolution by natural selection. The, um, it's formulated without using mathematics, but of course it's greatly enriched by applying mathematics once the idea has been put into place. Um, and the other type is intrinsically mathematical. Um, that type includes quantum theory, relativity, special relativity, general relativity, and so on, and cosmology in general. I don't think the, the former, the um, Darwinian selection theory, uh, requires metaphor. It does for communication, but not for comprehension. Uh, the latter, the intrinsically mathematical theories, uh, do require uh, metaphor. Uh, uh, not to elaborate them, but for us to consider that we have come to an understanding of them, that we comprehend them. I think metaphor is the mapping of mathematics onto concepts that emerged from the forest, the savannah, and the farmyard during our ethological uh, evolutionary history. Uh, we're we are surrounded by the familiar, and we seek to interpret mathematical theories in terms of that familiar. I think what we regard as understanding arises from the mapping of this interpretation, this creation of metaphor. In some cases, it can't be done, we have to admit. Um, we might be biologically and evolutionarily unable to achieve appropriate metaphors. Quantum mechanics is a prime example. It's wonderfully accurate mathematically, but it entails concepts such as duality and entanglement that we are mentally 
ill-equipped, perhaps unequipped, to comprehend. Then metaphor fails, and we are left not with comprehension, but still with the mathematics. There is perhaps a, a deeper role for mathematics that we shall come to later, but I'll leave it at that for now. Thanks very much, Peter. Um, and I'll turn now to Hilary Lawson with the same question for two minutes. Hilary. Thank you, Joe. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to agree with Rupert that I think scientific theories are models of the world. Um, they're not ultimate descriptions of the universe. They propose that we should hold the world in a particular way. They are uh, metaphors, or I would say they're, they're closures in a more technical sense. Now, this metaphorical character of scientific description doesn't only apply to the big uh, scientific metaphors like the Big Bang or dark matter or something. It applies to the everyday words that uh, scientists use like atoms and forces and laws. Those are equally metaphors. And indeed, when you try and uncover exactly what any of those are, uh, you somehow uncover the gap between the metaphor and the world, because you can't quite work out what this thing ultimately is. They are ways of holding the world, and each different way of holding the world enables us to do something. So in this respect, scientific theory is not different from the way that language functions generally. Um, and if, for example, I, I hold up this, uh, I, I can say, well, hold this as a hand. But I, I could say, hold it as a body part. I could say, hold it as a collection of atoms and molecules. Hold it as a, a, a surface with a pattern on it. Uh, hold it as an example in a discussion. There's no limit to the number of ways, the number of metaphors we can use to hold this bit of the world. And no one of them is somehow what it ultimately is. They are each ways of being able to intervene. And in each case, we can refine them. If we see it as a hand, we can say, well, is it a big hand? Is it a small hand? What sort of organism does it belong to? If we see it as atoms and molecules, we can ask, well, what particular atoms and molecules they are? We can refine our metaphors. We can look more closely. And we look by looking to see what happens when we use them. But we can't somehow see reality. What we do is we use the metaphor. And all of our big scientific theories, I think, function in exactly this way, from Big Bang to dark matter to gravity. They are no different. They are ways of holding the world. They haven't somehow uncovered some ultimate thing about the world. They're immensely powerful. They've been refined over time to be very useful, but uh, they are the result of a particular organism on a particular planet, on a particular bit of the universe, um, at a particular time, and we haven't somehow escaped that particularity to uncover how things ultimately are. Thanks very much, Hilary. So I'm going to turn in a bit more detail to this question of the relationship between metaphor and reality. And this, I, I suppose, the major question in this debate, which is, is there a reality there, definitely out there, which the metaphors are in some way uh, explaining or is, is everything metaphor? Um, Peter, I'd like to turn to you first. Um, would you say that the world does ultimately consist of quarks, atoms, bosons, electrons? Are they real and out there? 
Well, there's a difference between being a scientist who bases his views on evidence and being a philosopher who merely speculates. So I'm going to become a, a philosophical speculator. So there is no basis to what I say, but that's true of most philosophy anyway. Um, but um, I, I, I think that ultimately um, the world is mathematics. And I think that what scientific theories do, the mathematical ones, not the uh, literary ones like um, natural selection, the mathematical ones are discerning the, the, the structure, the ultimate structure of the universe in some manner. They're a kind of mapping of the ultimate reality onto pieces of paper the pieces of paper where you write down a collection of symbols which convey the logic of the structure going on deep, deep down. So as a pragmatic scientist, then of course the world is made up of electrons and quarks and things, and we, we, and we find that an enormously successful way of proceeding, and we use metaphor simply to be able to communicate deep, deep down all we see all we have is mathematics. Would you just to follow up, if say Lemaitre's um, theory, which we now call Big Bang Theory, say that it had been presented to the world using his original metaphor of the cosmic egg, do you think that would have made a difference to our understanding? Are the, are the metaphors applied significant to the underlying? It, well, it, it, it would make, um, we use metaphor in order to share our, our comprehension with hoi polloi, um, that we need to communicate, we need to share the insights that science is achieving, progressively achieving, and for that we have to turn to everyday language, everyday, everyday metaphor, if you like, and create fairy stories which are more or less close to the truth. But um, I think theories, like general relativity, like cosmology in general, um, emerged by being scratching away on paper and and fiddling around with symbols and juxtaposing different symbols in a way that ultimately matched the underlying reality. Thank you. Um, Hilary, would you like to come in on this? I mean, are quarks, atoms, electrons really there? And also conceptual ideas, space, time, quantum waves, would you say they're genuinely out there in the world and we're discerning and explaining them? Well, as I, as I said in my opening pitch, I, I don't think they are. I think all of these descriptions are not descriptions of things which are already out there. They are ways to hold what is out there in the way that I gave the example of the different ways that we could hold this. Uh, and we can hold the world as waves, we can hold it, 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 or we can use the metaphor waves in certain scientific theories, we can use particles as a way of understanding the world. We can, uh, when we get confused with trying to get either of those theories to work, we can talk about wave particles. We can operate with all sorts of different metaphors and they have consequences for us and they enable us to make sense, as it were, of the space that we're in and they enable us to intervene but I don't think that any of them have somehow reached through and and, and described you know what's ultimately there because I don't think we can do that that's not what 
human organisms or indeed any living organism does. We're, we're not able to reach through. This is a Wittgensteinian point. You can't, you can't somehow escape the human experience to touch reality. We're, we're stuck inside the human experience with our particular uh, frame that we have at, at the particular time that we have it. There we have the difference between a scientist and a philosopher. A philosopher is intrinsically pessimistic by saying that we will never, ever do such and such a thing. Whereas we scientists are burrowing away and getting down into that deeper reality. You wait here. In due course, you will eat your words. I'm all in favor of the burrowing down. I'm all in the favor of the exploring, the testing of our models to try and get them better, to try and get them more effective. I'm also interested in, in, in would encourage new and alternative uh, closures, uh, or alternative ways of holding the world that might work better as theories to enable us to do things that we're not able to do at the moment. I just want to take away, as it were, that grand enlightenment idea that we've somehow cracked it uh, once and for all, or we are moving to a point where we might get closer to cracking. I don't think it's... Our, our, our theories are tools, just in the same way, if we've got a spade, we can have a good spade that digs well, or, or, or one that doesn't. We don't say we have a true spade. And it seems to me, Scientific theories are like spades. They do work. They get things to happen. They enable us to intervene in the world and we should do all we can to explore and test them. Let's try and move into the second area about whether metaphors could potentially distract from a, if we are arguing there's an underlying reality or a kind of truth that things are getting to, they might distract from the truth. We might get trapped in a metaphor. I mean, I want to bring Ganesh in. I mean, I've read that you've mentioned scientists using a metaphor of scissors cutting out genetic sequences, and that's something you would disagree with. So there are presumably metaphors that become unhelpful or we get stuck in a way of thinking. Is that something you'd argue? I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, metaphors are, are sort of time-limited methods, basically, for getting a concept across. So, you know, when talking about genome editing of DNA, you can use metaphors such as scissors cutting paper just to get across the concept or top-tier level stuff, but it doesn't actually work like that. So, you know, on one hand, the metaphor helps get the concept across, but on the other hand, one might say it distracts from the scientific truth of what's happening because that isn't what is actually happening there. Alluding back to, to what um, Hilary and Peter were just discussing, the scientific theories make predictions, right? That's actually the, the heart of, of science, that you can make a prediction based on what you understand if you've understood it right, and then you can go ahead and test that. And it's through these iterative you know, predictions and testings of reality or as close to reality as we can get to it, obviously, that we make progress. And, you know, I found myself really torn listening to both Peter and Hilary there, because on one hand, I'm absolutely, I, you know, my heart sides with Peter. And I think, yeah, we are, we are optimist scientists. You know, we dedicate our entire lives to understanding the, the finer grain movements of a single molecule in a particular organism at a particular point in time. You know, that's that's no mean feat, as it were. But equally, I feel like, you know, there's that the, the thing that I alluded to even in my opening comments sort of um, resonated with what Hillary said about is there any hope for uh, an organism such as us to actually be able to externalize ourselves sufficiently to be able to turn back and observe ourselves? And 
I understand that sort of reticence or that, you know, maybe pessimism, as Peter might put it, but equally, it does have to be said, we've, we've done remarkably well so far, you know, so whilst, whilst maybe the point stands, we're doing an all right job, and maybe the future looks relatively bright. Yes, Rupa, I want to bring you in because you've argued that the whole um, notion that nature is mechanical and working in accordance with mathematics is itself um, a fundamental assumption and presumably then a metaphor. Would you argue that therefore can this be tested and refuted? Um, is it not even a scientific theory in your view? Well, I think the machine theory of nature is clearly a metaphor. I can't think of an experiment you could do that would definitively refute it because you can see, uh, as Hillary said, you can look at nature in a mechanical way through that lens, if you like, the heart's like a pump. The brain could be compared to a computer to some degree. Um, but so these are all inadequate uh, metaphors. Um, I think though that you see, that I disagree with Peter in this idea that mathematics is somehow truer. Um, you don't use maths in most of uh, science. I mean, the triumphs of molecular biology, for example, have very little to do with mathematics. There's a bit of mathematics in genetics. But, you know, when people are doing uh, mutants and, and with Arabidopsis or Sinorhabditis and these mutational studies, they're not primarily mathematical at all. I've been wading through dozens of these papers in the last few weeks, and there's no maths in any of them. If you're doing the taxonomy of orchids, you look at orchid flowers, you go to the herbarium at Kew, you look at press specimens of orchids, you don't use equations. And if you then assume, well, ultimately, somehow later down the line with inconceivably huge computers, we could actually figure it all out with computers, uh, that's nothing but promissory materialism or promissory mathematics. And when we come to what mathematical physicists themselves do, we find that they spin webs of what I would regard as fantasy. For example, the superstring theory, which has, predicts the existence of 10 to the 500 universes, uh, is one of the underlying theoretical uh, tissues of assumption underneath, under the multiverse theory. Many, many physicists, based on this mathematics, believe that there are countless unobserved actual universes, the multiverse, and uh, this, to my mind, is nothing but fantasy based on mathematics. So I don't think mathematics has any superior claim. It's just another set of metaphors, and that particular set of metaphors lead to untestable predictions that seem to me very close to fantasy. Um, Peter, would you like to come in on this notion that mathematical physicists are fantasists, uh, possibly respond on that? Yes, but ultimately they, they, they test their ideas against um, observation. I was going to say reality, but that would be circular. They, they test it against observation. If it turns out that there are 10 to the 500 universes or an infinite number of universes out there, then that would be a great triumph for the theory. And Rupert can't just lie back and dismiss it as a simple fantasy. It might be true. And we've got no way at the moment of predicting whether it is true or not, but it's worth thinking about, especially if it has other implications which can be tested. For, it, for example, uh, the same theory might predict the, the charge of an electron, in which case we can go out and measure the charge of the electron and see whether we get an agreement with observation. I mean, fantasy is fantastic, but it, is, it should always be grounded in observation. 
Rupert did chastise me for, um, well, he, he, he did make the point that um, there are theories that are not mathematical. I, need, I did make that point in my open discussion when referring to something like natural, natural selection and so on. So yes, there are these two great grand classes of scientific explanation, which I would call the mathematical and the literary. Yes, thank you. Can I, I, you you've argued in the past um, that you know the realist notion that our scientific metaphors describe reality is in fact damaging to science. I mean, would you like to um, explain that a little more and, and maybe respond to Peter as well? This issue about mathematics is, is certainly a central one to address. And in a way, I applaud Peter for, for taking the sort of um, uh, pushing, as it were, on the scientific ontology to the point of having identified that all of the other things that people have proposed as being the ultimate bits of the universe, which might be physical objects or things or particles or whatever, doesn't really stand up when you when you explore it and has sort of retreated, as it were, to a position of saying the world just is mathematics. And um, I, I think uh, I think I understand why he's why he's made that move because um, none of the other ones are available. But I, I don't think that we should buy that one either. And instead, we should um, conclude that. Uh, uh, so along the lines of what Rupert was saying, that mathematics is itself a way of holding the world. But I think there is a further puzzle for those of us who hold a sort of model theoretic account of what's going on here, which is to explain why it is that mathematics works quite so well. I mean, you know, the Pythagoras theorem does predict the length of the hypotenuse, and how does it do that if it hasn't uncovered something essential about the character of the world? I would say it's something to do with the structure of uh, thought. It's something that mathematics operates on the basis that the world is made of bits. Uh, that's what numbers are, that you assume there is a one, there is a two, there are bits. And when you apply that principle that the world is divided into bits, you can generate a logic of how those bits function. In fact, uh, I suppose the world is not made of bits in that way. It's our thought that imposes the bits on the world, and mathematics is part of that. And uh, that's why, in the end, uh, we find uh, it can be so powerful in certain, certain situations. So, the, the, yes, I mean, the mathematics question, this is the kind of third aspect of our debate. And as you say, Hilary, it's an enormous subject. Ganesh, I wanted to ask you about this because you use vast quantities of data. Um, presumably, is there a point at which things might become incommunicable without metaphors? So you almost need a way to convey these. And is there a possibility that then things are inevitably simplified when they go into language? And do the metaphors matter, do you think? Or is it just a kind of means, a sort of useful means of conveying these vast quantities? I mean, the short answer to all of those questions is yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the nature of human, human beings, basically. That's the nature of all language. And um, I actually was sort of going to say this a little bit earlier, but it seems a relevant point to, to sort of raise that. It's sort of talking back to, to Peter's point that everything is effectively mathematics. 
when we talk about a cell or an organism or something like that, we use a word to describe a whole collection of things that could theoretically maybe be described as in mathematical terms, right? Much like you use a word processor on your computer and that means thing that I can use to write with rather than, you know, which is equal to the whole code behind it that describes what that program does, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, when, when we talk, when I use data in my line of work to look at how particular molecules uh, behave within cells, within embryos, um, and what that means, for example, for normal developmental processes, um, you know, ultimately I dive into the reality at the level of effectively the molecule is my basic unit there. But that's not necessarily all there is to it. That's just my, you know, that's the level at which I engage with what I need to engage with. I don't need to go further into it per se. Mm -hmm. Though it does need to be said, I'm afraid, Rupert, that um, increasingly molecular biologists are going in, in the, into the realms of physics. And there's increasing mathematical modeling and physics in this space, unfortunately for us, um, because uh, it seems that, for example, my interest that comes out of basic genetics and developmental biology and what said molecule does in said cell at said point in time is actually a product of its own structure and the physics, literal physics uh, of how it interacts with other molecules within those cells. And so, you know, what I'm trying to say is ultimately, whilst I use the word cell to talk about what I'm talking about, uh, or molecule to talk about, you know, the, my molecules of interest, you know, in, in many ways, those two words are also metaphors, right? They're, they're sort of averages of a whole lot of other things that are happening under the hood, as it were, that I just use to describe what I need to describe at that point in time. Sorry to interrupt. I was thinking especially about cell because I remember the story of Hook, you know, seeing the cork under the microscope and thinking it looked like monastic cells. And that's very interesting because we get these terms that it comes from the original perception of a single mortal human and then kind of evolve into something else. So again, it, it could it have been, you know, if you had a different imagination or a framework, would that change something in the way that we perceive those cells? I mean, so Absolutely, you know, in, in many ways, I mean, you're talking to a developmental biologist, the number of things in my line of work that are named by virtue of what the first scientist who saw them thought of is unbelievable. You know, hairless, wingless, you know, sonic, things like that, you know, things are named in my field literally to do with often popular culture references at the time of whoever first saw it. So to some extent, yes, you're absolutely right. But the, the nature of science is such that if somebody else had seen it and if they'd called it something different, it would still do the same thing and it would still raise the same predictable um, expectations and would still have performed in the same way. So if we call it a cell, we can call it a cell or we could call it a balloon or a circle or whatever we want to call it, frankly, but it should still do the same thing, you know, and and yeah, so I mean, I think the, the, the use of the word metaphor in this context is a bit of a, not, not a troubling one, it's, it's got many different implications for the conversation we're having. Um, you know, ultimately, language is a metaphor for everything that our brain perceives that it seems to be, you know, uh, sort of the stimuli that it's getting from the external world. And it's our, 
you know, our cultures tell us how to uh, break those up into discrete units that we can use to communicate, namely being words. But there's also, you know, the separate aspect, which, you know, obviously is something that I, I think of a lot more, which is to do with metaphor in the context of scientific explanation, which mm. is another layer on top of that. That's an interesting point being raised about language, in the sense that um, some fields, and I'm thinking of theoretical physics, were very good at using common names for intrinsically abstract ideas, like when thinking about chromodynamics in, in uh, elementary particle physics, people came up with the idea of colour. And then you realize that the three entities have three different colors and they group together to give you, as it were, white entities. That is immediate, but dangerous. It might mislead you into thinking that you're really talking about color. And then as a kind of counterexample to that, and, and you'll have to help me with the language here, but in cladistics, when you're classifying sort of families of, of organisms, the, the people who invent, the biologists who invented cladistics came up with the most unearthly um, Greek words, which had never been used in the language before. Um, and so is it better to use sterile words which have no resonance in order to talk about a theory? Or is it better to use simple words which do have a resonance yet might be misleading? Thank you. Rupert, if we bring you in, you said even mathematical models are metaphor. And in this, I think you agree with Hillary. Could you expand a bit on this, please? Yes. I mean, metaphors are basically about things in our minds which we apply to reality. But mathematical models are also in our minds. They're human constructs. Now, Platonists, the school of metaphysical philosophy, Platonism says maths is actually real. It's out there in some kind of cosmic mind. Uh, you never meet a mathematical law in nature. Even Pythagoras' theorem, you don't actually find right-angled triangles in the natural world. You only find them as abstractions in, in geometry textbooks. So we don't actually find mathematics in the world. We make it. And Platonists or Pythagoreans like to think um, that there's a world out there beyond space and time, a transcendent realm in which all this mathematics exists eternally, and the world's a kind of reflection of it. It's a form of theology. And in the 17th century, people thought these mathematical laws were ideas in the mind of God. Now, I've nothing, no problem with God or theology, uh, but I think that this problem of, of uh, platonic mathematics is an assumption implicit in the thinking of many physicists and mathematicians. But I myself belong to the school of thought that these are things in our own minds. Sometimes they work extremely well, and it's a very interesting question as to why they work so well. Um, but they're nevertheless in our minds, and therefore they're metaphors. They're applying a mental construct to aspects of reality that sometimes fits well and sometimes doesn't fit so well. I drew the analogy between what I think is out there deeply, that is, mathematics is the infinite, the distant fabric of the universe, and our ability, the ability of human brains to, to generate it, and that somehow or other, I see a, a kind of resonance between this deep structure of the world and the logic that our brains can generate. And that's what I regard as deep structuralism. Oh, well, Hilary, can you respond to that? Because you were saying there's a structure of thought that might produce mathematics, and yeah. people are arguing that that's actually out in the world and we, we're part of it. Would you like to come in on that? 
Well, I think that we do have to give an account of why mathematics is able to be quite as successful as it is. I think that mathematics uncovers the structure of thought, it uncovers the structure of closure, uh, and uh, it describes what the relationships are between closures, that is, holding things as something in particular. And that logic, as it were, of closure, I think, it is a... It is a you know, it is, is a description of, of the way that our thought functions. But I, I agree with uh, Rupert's point that the, what we do is we somehow apply that logic to the closures, the metaverse that we have already identified in the world, and then we can elaborate it. And when it gets to the point, as it has done undoubtedly in aspects of contemporary physics, where it's somehow lost that connection with the world and its initial, it's somehow free-floating in developing the logical relations between these elements. And then we somehow try and push a, a metaphor onto the mathematics. And, and then I think you do end up in the, in the nonsense that Rupert's describing of suggesting uh, things like, well, there are 10 to the 500 universes that we're operating in as, as a means of trying to explain how the mathematics might function. That's a mistake. And it's happened not only in science. It happens in, it's happened in philosophy. You know, philosophers have become obsessed with, or went through a stage 100 years ago of being obsessed with logic and mathematics, thinking that would solve everything. It, lots of other disciplines are somehow attracted by the precision of mathematics and then make the mistake that somehow this is the solution to the world, which of course is what Pythagoras thought when he first came across it. But it's not, it's, it's a way of holding the world which can be immensely powerful, but it's not how it is. On what evidence can you base the remark that say, saying that there is that number of universes is nonsense? What is the evidence? Okay, okay. Uh, you're quite, you're, you're perfectly right to say it could turn out to be that it, this is a very powerful model. It could be that operating with 10 to the 500 universes uh, turns out to be a fantastic thing that enables us to do all sorts of things we can't do at the moment. I, I suppose that uh, 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 Rupert's scepticism and my scepticism is it seems to be a rather wild uh, supposition. Uh, I mean, I could propose that the world is uh, run by a uh, secret sect on the uh, star, you know, wh whatever it is. I, I think this is unlikely. Uh, in a similar sort of way, it seems to me to say that, that, that we are part of the 10 to the 500 universes. That's more universes than there are particles in the, in the known universe. Uh, just seems to me a, a, a bit of an eccentric uh, proposal. And, and let's apply Occam's razor and just say, come on, guys. It's a better idea just to think we, we've got it wrong. The, the, the mathematics doesn't make uh, sense in this way. And we need to think again. We need to have a more straightforward with closure, which might actually generate some use. So it's just prejudice. Well, I, I'm open to any theory. I mean, presumably you're open to the theory that, you know, the Earth is controlled by small mice on, on, on the moon. But you probably think that it's not worth paying much attention to that theory. You probably think, actually, you know, I'm not going to explore it very much. So on a starting point, yes, the Earth could be controlled by mice on the moon. Um, it could be the case that there are 10 to the 500 universes out there. But uh, I think I'm just going to take my understanding of the way things work and think, no, that seems implausible. And of course, if someone could come up with some better examples of why this might turn out to be a fantastic way to operate, well, fair enough. Alas, we're running out of time. So I'm going to turn to each one of our discussants for brief closing remarks on 
how we might get you know out of the fix of language and reality in 30 seconds which will be i assume impossible but we'll try peter i, I think metaphor is essential for communication but not for discovery okay that's in, right goodness if i just apply that question towards you and would you agree with what peter just said yes yeah. absolutely yeah i couldn't agree more Fantastic. Well, that's an eerie note of absolute agreement. That's brilliant. And if I bring in Rupert for closing remarks on this last and the full section of the debate. Well, I don't think that metaphors are just for popularising or dumbing down science to the ignorant public. Or I think they're the way we think. They're the way scientists think. The genetic programme metaphor, the brain as a computer metaphor, have dominated uh, whole departments of universities for decades. And I think they're bad metaphors, but they're metaphors that aren't just for communication, they're the way people actually think. And we, we have to, the laws of nature are the way scientists actually think. Most of them think the laws were fixed at the moment of the Big Bang. Um, that's again a metaphor. So it's not as if scientists are above all this, and uh, maybe some pure mathematicians or mathematical physicists do think primarily in mathematics, but the vast majority of science, which has to deal with testing things and empirical reality, um, uh, is dominated by metaphorical thinking, not only in popularization where you may use extra metaphors, but in the very thinking of scientists themselves. Thank you. Hilary, just brief closing remarks, if you would. I agree. I think the metaphors are not just communicative tools. They are the means of discovery. A, a, a new metaphor, a new way of holding something opens up a whole series of possibilities. And the real puzzle is why are some metaphors more effective than others? And, and to try and choose the ones that are, are more effective and to explore and develop those. Uh, and that's uh, absolutely central to what science is about, and it's been immensely successful in doing that, and it needs to carry on doing it. In fact, in some ways, I would say science should be more scientific. It should be more open to alternative metaphors and alternative ways of looking at things and exploring the impacts of those in order to give us better tools to intervene in the world. Thank you. Alas, we have to conclude now. I'd like to thank our brilliant speakers, Ganesh Taylor, Rupert Sheldrake, Peter Atkins and Hilary Lawson. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.